this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you are just joining us for the first time, this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. And this summer, we are talking about some of the bigger kind of system-wide issues in, in Vermont. And today we're talking to Scott Woodward, who is the former deputy commissioner of the Agency of Digital Services for the state and also a technology consultant. And very glad to have you on the show today, Scott. Thank you. Well, thanks for the invitation. And of course, we have regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is speaking to us actually from Montpelier today. Long time since you've actually talked to us from Montpelier. So glad you're with us. Yes, happy to be in Montpelier. Um, had meetings yesterday and today for um, some joint committee meetings. And it's the first time I've had meetings in real life in a long time now. It's been very interesting to try to navigate navigate the politics with people in 3D. Are you finding you need new skills or you're brushing off old skills? Like what? what's kind of the growing pains this these couple of days? I forgot how uncomfortable the chairs are in the state house compared to my delightful office chair, <laughs> which is, you know, fine for an hour and not so okay for six hours, mm-hmm. not major suffering. And it's a lot of stimulation. We're doing everything in hybrid now so we can maintain the YouTube stream for the public, which I'm very excited about, but it means that I have trying to think my thoughts and plan my remarks while it's very important to pay attention to what all of my colleagues are doing and sort of signaling. And then there's four enormous screens around the room where we have witnesses and some committee members, as well as the real live audience who also do a lot of signaling that's helpful to pay attention to. And then this meeting yesterday, I was co-chairing. So there was also sort of the responsibility of having the meeting run well. Um, and so it was just a lot of, it was a lot of stimulus for someone who um, mostly just sits on the computer and looks at the birds. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm excited about it though. I think, you know, more can get done when we can look each other in the face. And so that will be good. And I am very happy that we're continuing the YouTube live stream because I think it's been really incredible for my constituents down in Brattleboro and for the local media and all in all good for democracy. But my eyes still feel quite wide open from yesterday. (laughs) It's just a lot to take in. Scott, I would love to touch base with you just quickly as someone who is deep into information technology. Yeah. And We have joked on this show about some of the debacles that have happened with state systems around IT. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, as someone who watches these sort of things and works on these sort of systems, what are your thoughts right now about where Vermont is with technology, especially given that it has had to make some leaps with like everything Emily just talked about right now with COVID and being hybrid and Zoom and and all these things? Right. So a couple of things wrap up, wrapped up in there. One is kind of like the general IT landscape and and the uh, landscape of projects that are underway and systems being implemented, maintained. And that and then there's the how do we work in IT these days in the pandemic? The first one first, I, I, I think at least purely from an IT perspective, IT folks are actually quite accustomed to working the way we have had to work in 
during the pandemic. So it's not that big of a deal to have shifted to a remote style of working or working in a disconnected way, physically disconnected way. That's not new territory for IT people. So I, you know, for instance, not in while I worked in Vermont, but I, I worked on a long-term project for the city of Denver and I worked with people I never met ever. We never met once in person. And we worked on the project for five years and it was an extremely successful project for people who never met in person. So that's kind of the norm for IT folks. So it's, I would imagine it's been kind of a no hiccup situation for a lot of IT people during the pandemic. But to your larger question about IT projects, I'd say right off the top of my off of the bat, I'm I'm not that tuned into what's going on lately, the last like year or two. But prior to that, I was quite tuned into what was going on throughout the state with with IT projects. And I think I, I guess I would say uh, I haven't talked to my former colleagues within ADS in, in a while, but I, I would say it takes a while to for an organization an IT organization to transition to a getting projects under control. And I know for quite a while that that was the number one priority was to rein in all the IT projects and, and identify them, get them under control and figure out the path forward on all of them. I, I don't really know where that's at these days, but that is always a huge challenge. It can actually take several years. It's not something you can turn around in just a short time. Although having said that, that's no excuse certainly to not see progress. You know, I would, I would think the legislature would want to um, see marked progress on those kinds of efforts uh, as time goes by. I want to just jump in quickly, Scott. And one thing I love about some of the conversations we have on this show is we get to talk to people who are deeply engrossed in systems like you are. And yeah. so when you when you talk about getting a, an IT system under control, you yeah. know, as someone who just maybe logs into a state service, like let's say Vermont Health Connect or uh, the unemployment system, my definition of an under control means I get whatever outcome I logged in to get. Yeah. What does that look like, though, under control mean for you as someone who's working on the back end of the system? Yeah, great question. So your first point is actually right on. I mean, that ultimately, that is the measure of what an under control or successful project is, whether the consumer, whether it's someone from the public or even someone within state government, is getting exactly the right outcome in the right time. But internally, the back end, a lot of that is around project discipline and process and following defined processes and and having that, what I would call organizational discipline. That's not only important for an individual project, but it's actually important from an ongoing success standpoint. It's difficult to have repeated successes over and over again if you can't trust your own back end processes. And so that's why that kind of back-end discipline is so critical. Mm-hmm. It's also really hard to achieve because at the end of the day, we're all, Vermont in particular, I would say, I, I have a lot of experience with other states, but Vermont is a little unique in that it, it's generally pretty resource constrained hmm. when it comes to IT projects. 
and it, because Vermont's a small state, there are limited resources to begin with, and that can be a challenge in achieving that kind of discipline I described is when you have limited people who have to do their day jobs too, that becomes a really big challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, we joke sometimes that the state's held together with um, duct tape and bailing twine. And, you know, in the last two years, I think the thing, you know, you said that you haven't sort of had eyes on for the last year, but the things that have come up are sort of further explosions of systems that have been around for 30 years and we have an upbeat, right? Like it's the other system that's, you know, like sub DOS based and the early childhood system to not be able to find like emergency pandemic care for essential workers. And so these systems that have been desperately in need of investment for a very long time, we suddenly see, we meaning like decision makers with pocketbooks decide finally that like, oh yes, IT is essential to invest in. And so there's two sort of questions that sit with me about this. One, you said that it's often we're resource constrained. And what it seems to me when we have these conversations is that because we're so small, we can't like there's no economy of scale in paying for a project like this. And so having something designed for ourselves often is much too expensive because it still needs the same design specs as a much larger system. It's just a system. So like the per per Vermonter cost is really high. But when we buy off the shelf systems, it seems that we can never adapt them well to our magical Vermont specific policy goals, which are often quite different from other states' policy goals. Um, like really curious for your thoughts on that. And then I want to talk about like what it means to have IT meet policy needs, but that's a, that's a conversation. Yeah. That's a question. Yeah, that, 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 that's really good context. Uh, so that, that's a really good lead into, and it's not just a Vermont problem. It, it, this has been ever since off the shelf products started to emerge in the market back in the nineties, maybe even the eighties, the quintessential challenge has been well, what do you do? Do you change the system to accommodate your unique world or do you change your unique world to fit the system? And that, you know, my advice to legislators would be to ask a lot of questions, just as you're doing here, is to ask questions when you you hear responses and to say, well, why can't you change your process? Or why is Vermont so unique that you can't alter the policy? And, And you know, as we know, sometimes policy changes mean statutory changes, which can be a big lift. But at the same time, those economies of scale and actual economies of buying and maintaining systems can be achieved by adapting the back-end processes to fit with the system rather than the other way around. I think, um, you know, this is a very general statement, but I've seen it many, many times over and over again. And I've been working with government clients for uh, 16 years now. And so in that 16 years, I've heard it many times, even in the private sector, that uh, we're so unique, we can't change our processes to the way the system works. And therefore, we can't leverage the advantage of an off-the-shelf product. But that it's not really true. I mean, it, it, there are certainly unique circumstances where you can't change the process, but a lot of times you can. And, it, and that just becomes a, 
an organizational question, whether the organization you, wants to change. Are you saying that we should match our policy and program systems to match existing IT, available IT infrastructure rather than shifting IT infrastructure to match policy goals? It's not, I'll, I'll try and think of a tangible example, but it's not quite as dramatic as that. I wish I could think of a, a really tangible example, but. Uh, I have a really good one. I, can I give you one? Because it's oh, sure. really funny. Yeah, yeah, just, sure. okay. So um, liquor in Vermont, yeah. you know, yeah. New England state, an excess of liquor laws that are organized like pretty much in the same way they probably were in the 1800s for some right. reason. And so what happens is liquor licenses have to be approved at the town level by right. the town liquor board. Yep. which is usually the board. Yep. And there's a piece of paper right. that the applicant, I love this example because it was just sort of a funny story from yesterday. So there's a piece of paper that the applicant gives to the town and then yep. the town clerk signs off on with a check. And then they mail the piece of paper and the check to the state liquor board mm-hmm. who then cash the check and file it and do their own system of approvals right. and then send it back again. Yeah. It's all done on paper. Yep. Things get lost all the time. Right. And my understanding is that during the pandemic, they set up a a more paperless system where the towns could see what was happening along the paperwork's journey. And now that the pandemic's in a new phase, and some people think it's over, they aren't doing that anymore because they say they can't. And it's so interesting to me because we have so many other systems that town clerks use, like the tax system or, you know, where everything, there's a much cleaner flow of data because there's a shared data system between the town and the liquor department. But it seems like they need the system to match the way they do things rather than. That that is an excellent, yeah, excellent example. And, And I know that process very well, having served in local government for a long time. So I know exactly what you're talking about. You could probably do a whole nother show on municipal IT and that that whole topic is ripe for discussion. But yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, what's great about the example you cited is that call it old habits, if you will, or old ways of doing things. And, and it's not to say that they're bad ways of doing things. It's just the way people get used to doing a certain way things a certain way for years. And then somehow in the mind, it creeps in to think, well, we can't do it any other way. There's no other way to do it because that's the right way. Or there's something, it's easy to find something about the way you describe uh, getting a a liquor license to say, well, we must maintain the way we're doing it. We've always done it. There's something really special about it. And oftentimes there's not. You just have to keep peeling back the layers and challenge that thinking because again, knowing that process you described very well, that whole process could be put online just as you described, it could be expedited. It could go much smoother, getting rid of the inefficiencies just like you described. That makes sense to me. Yep. And then when I think of sort of what feels to me like a much more impactful example, I'm sorry to all the people trying to get liquor licenses, but- the Department of Labor's unemployment insurance system. And what I imagine is, so hypothetically building a new IT system, have this ancient IT system that was really built around the only 
IT that was probably available at the time, maybe. But 40 years later, 30 years later, here we are. What there's a balancing act between is updating the IT system to match the existing processes because people are stuck in their processes or adapting the processes to the new off-the-shelf IT system. But then there's the third option, which is the magic place where I want us to be, and I'm curious your thoughts on, which is this is an incredible opportunity to deeply reflect on our process and how it meets the needs of Vermonters. And we do that first, and then we develop an IT system to match that. You should be in IT. (laughs) I should not. (laughs) No. I've spent a lot of time with organizations doing process improvement, like for sort of like client experiences. So well, I wait, yeah, notes. when I say you should be in IT, you should be not necessarily directly IT, but yes. that, that thinking that you just described is spot on. And what you're hitting on is it's also, I don't call it a flaw, if you will, in the way IT projects are conceived. You know, this is probably something we could talk a lot about in a different conversation, but I've long felt that the way that we come at IT projects is all wrong. And what you just described about putting on the front end of the conversation, well, hey, here's an opportunity to reflect on our process. Let's do that thinking on the front end rather than because... I can attest over and over and over again on so many IT projects, and it's not just a Vermont thing, that what you just described happens at the end of the process and much, much too late. You can't affect change and you can't improve IT systems if you don't ask the question that you just posed on the end of, at the end of the process. You have to do it at the beginning. And so if you have that conversation at the very beginning and say, put aside what you think is the right process, put aside uh, what is off the shelf available through the software, let's reflect on current process. How can we make it better? How can we affect better outcomes? And that should be the first step in the process. But, But that is not the norm in IT projects. It should be the norm. In some projects, it is. It's not to say that it's never done, but in my experience, it's rarely done on the front end when it should be done. And I can say with confidence that, again, Vermont's not unique in this, but a lot of projects that have had challenges in Vermont, it is because that thinking did not occur on the front end. So with the, sorry, Olga, I'm like super diving on the No, go for it. I think it's a great question. I think the promise of ADS existing, and for our listeners who do not follow the machinations of agency creation and destruction as closely as, say, maybe I do or Olga and Scott do, the Agency of Digital Services is a fairly new beast. And the idea was we wanted to have all the expertise related to state data systems in one place rather than having a data person or a data team at each individual department or agency. So we can sort of streamline best practices better. Yeah. And so the person who supports that like process improvement conversation and that process sort of mapping conversation, does that person sit at ADS? And how much do they need to know about like the actual thing that's happening? 
I don't really know. My t- when I was at ADS, at that time, it was mostly getting the organization off the ground and getting the, the rudimentary pieces in place. I don't know where that stands now. Where do you think it should stand? Yeah, that's a great question. I know that, I, and I can't remember, Sue Zeller, I don't know if she's still around, but there, there's a group. Yeah, she's still the director of performance. I'm confusing yeah. her title with Drew's title. What is her title? Yes, she's still doing her awesome performance monitoring stuff. Yes. Right, so there's a tie-in with... with In the agency of administration. Right, yeah. and there's a tie-in there with what you described with, with her work. You know, generally, generally the way it works is you have a group of people that either float as part of uh, maybe a project management office body that is either in IT or not in IT. It can go either way. And you may, they may be within the PMO office. They may be a separate organizational change group and they accomplish what you described. They have a similar skill set that what Sue Zeller group teaches. And so they, they have those skills and they kind of lead the organization through that step in the process. But again, I, I think you hit the nail on the head that that is really one of the biggest challenges that uh, oftentimes IT projects, you know, just dive in and start doing the project and don't think about rethinking, you know, coming at it from a fresh lens. And, you know, it's escaping me right now. I, I should have done a little homework before this morning, but there, you know, there, there is a, a system within human services. I know that is really supposed to be the centerpiece of providing those stronger outcomes for Vermonters and, and IT systems are a big part of that. But that's, that's like a, a great example where that kind of thinking would come right into play. Before we, we take our break, Scott, I'd love to hear from you. Do you have any thoughts on, oops, I do believe we've lost Emily, unfortunately. Yeah, seems like it. I am still recording for the audio, so we will just kind of keep going. Okay. And and hopefully she will return soon. I think she's back. Oh, yep, I there she is. I see her picture anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so for our audio listeners, this will be a bonus. How could the legislature support IT systems in Vermont better? Are there other questions they could be asking? Is there other systems they could be putting in place? Other supports they could? I mean, there, there's a lot of things, but I, I think from a high level, the I don't know if any exist yet, but it's a balancing act between getting too much into IT's business, so to speak. But on the other hand, I think it's perfectly within the purview of the legislature to demand certain metrics. And, and so metrics having sounds like a consultant thing to say, but <laughs> I always say three to judge the health uh, of IT projects, IT systems. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be anything in depth, but it needs to be timely. It needs to be an ongoing, it can't just be once a year. It needs to be mm-hmm. an ongoing routine kind of uh, availability of certain metrics. What that does for the legislature is it allows individual legis- legislators and the legislature as a whole to judge the health of IT overall, but also metrics have a, a great way of prompting questions. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a great way for the legislature to pinpoint 
where it wants to focus its attention is by looking at certain metrics. Okay, thank you. For all our listeners on the radio right now, uh, Scott Woodward and I are going to take a break, and hopefully Emily, who I I tell you, Scott, this always happens whenever Emily and I have a conversation about anything IT, anything uh, broadband related, like something goes kaflui, which makes me think that Vermont just might be cursed. So we're going to take a quick break, everybody, and. the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you are just joining us, I am speaking with Scott Woodward, who is the former Deputy Commissioner of the Vermont Agency of Digital Services and is now a consultant. And hopefully... Regular contributor Emily Kornheiser will be jumping in and out of this conversation. Unfortunately, she is having internet issues, which always seems to happen when we talk about anything digital in in Vermont. Before uh, I want to talk about big data, but before we get to that, I just want to quickly touch base with you. You know, in the first half, Emily brought up that really great point that Vermont is so small as a state that sometimes our economy of scale and, and how we choose um, IT systems can be tricky. Can you think of any states or small municipalities that are kind of Vermont size that maybe have tackled that issue of scale well, um, that Vermont can learn from? Yeah, I, I don't know offhand. And and I think that we only touched on it briefly, but I, I think... Um, we also have to kind of better define what we mean by scale, meaning mm, mm-hmm. is it the number of IT projects that are in play at any given time and the resources that can do it, that can accomplish those projects or another um, kind of yardstick that's good to, it, it, this is hard to apply to a state, but I've always kind of offered to clients a bit of a yardstick to say, look, you should only have five to six projects in play at any time. Mm-hmm. This, this would be kind of a rule of thumb for a, an individual business because it doesn't matter how good you are, whether you're a huge Fortune 500 company or a small business, people only have so much mental capacity. And, and so it's not, it's not just how big the organization or big the state is. There's a certain, I've found, and this is kind of anecdotal, but I found that there's a a kind of almost like a mental limit that we all have of how much we can tackle at any one time. And so I, I've always encouraged, whether it's a big state or little state to tailor your list to only five or six key key projects at a time. Uh, And then everything else after that is just like keeping the wheels turning. And I I think there's a tendency and this goes to the issue of scale I think there's a tendency to think, well, we're a state, we're a state government. We can do as much as we want to do. And, but we're also all human and we have kind of our own embedded human capacities too. So yeah, that, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but I think, I I think less is more is the takeaway. Mm -hmm. I think one thing COVID taught us is it showed us where some of our vulnerabilities were as a state, as far as some of the program we were using. But 
I think that thinking going back to the the Vermont Department of of Labor, that surge of use and that surge of need would probably have swamped any system. What can we do looking forward? What lessons can we learn from COVID to implement for our IT system so that they might be more resilient to this type of upheaval in the future? Yeah, I, uh, really good question. I don't know if this occurs uh, here in Vermont. Prior to, I lived in San Francisco. I worked in Silicon Valley for many years before moving to Vermont. And so I worked for a big consulting firm called Booz Allen Hamilton. And when I was at Booz, we came up with a really creative methodology around business continuity planning. So mm-hmm. every state, uh, Vermont has one where the state plans for certain disasters to occur, whether it's a pandemic or a major natural disaster and and how the state will continue doing what it needs to do in the midst of a disaster like that. And I, I think, I don't know this for sure, but what I suspect is the case with Vermont is that that is kind of done at the top level you know, contingency planning, getting um, uh, physical resources where they need to be if there's a disaster. But the IT systems are sometimes not contemplate, like, what do we need to do around our IT systems to make sure that they too can handle what might happen in that context? There's some, what's called disaster recovery in IT world. That's different than what we're talking about because disaster recovery is more about how do we make sure our critical systems are still running and we don't lose any data, but that's a very narrow concept. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is how do we anticipate using our IT systems in a potentially different way based on the the circumstances. And that's something that that I don't think is really contemplated in the business continuity planning. So, what I would say is that business continuity planning needs to be kind of broadened out a little bit more to think about that the whole situation with DOL is a great lesson to say, okay, it could have been a DOL system. It could have been some other system where there's this sudden surge and we need to figure out how we might deal with that, whether it's extra server capacity or people or a I'm just winging it here, but you could even have like people who are designated development SWAT teams, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's like you, you, and you, when things go really badly, you are our designated SWAT team. And if we have to develop a new system on the fly, you're the ones we're going to grab to do it because you're our, you know, our top developers mm-hmm. and, and they can kind of come in and create systems on the fly. That probably happened. It seems like that that's what happened in in practice, but actually planning for it too. Right. It sounds to me like in what you just said that making sure folks have perhaps the training, the skills, the resources to do those things on the fly. So it's a little less trial by fire than perhaps COVID was at times. Yeah. And to kind of get even deeper into the weeds on that is... I, I served in the military for a long time. And, and so one of the things that the military does is it has certain equipment set aside for basically if hotspots occur in the globe, 
there's equipment set aside, there are processes, there are plans. They uh, aren't exercised. Uh, they're exercised periodically, but they're not exercised on a daily basis. But everybody is tagged. Like, every, you know, someone in the military is like, you've got to roll, you've got to roll, you've got to roll. So when th- something flares up in the world, those people know how to mobilize. They know what equipment they're supposed to go and get and where, you know, and they're just waiting for their orders. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like that where uh, almost having the equipment designated, the people, the roles, and the framework existing. And then when something happens, you mobilize those resources and say, okay, now go do what you, you've been assigned to do and trained to do. That probably exists to some degree within state government, but maybe not quite to the degree it should. Mm-hmm. Let's change gears just a little bit and talk about data. Yeah. And and data use. Uh for just for the sake of listeners, while Emily was still connected with us, unfortunately she's had to step away because technology just was not cooperating. But she raised a really good point. She said, you know, with with all the collection of data that does happen through IT systems, how can Vermont better use its data? for its decision-making, you know, for the, the lawmakers. And yet, how do we also protect our, our data from just being sold willy-nilly throughout by, by say, big data companies? I'd love if you would run with, with that, Scott. What are some of the, the ways Vermont can use it? How do we protect ourselves? Yeah, yeah two, two, two different uh, questions for sure. The second question first with, with security and but that too is a pretty big topic. I, I think that the simple answer is that, particularly dealing with private companies, it really comes down to the contract. Whatever the contract vehicle is with that organization is making sure that there's provisions in that contract and not just provisions in the contract, but at those provisions translate into actual methods of data handling to prevent bad things from, from occurring. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's got to start with the drafting of the contract and to make sure that, for instance, if data is not supposed to be sold to third parties, that's got to be an explicit contract provision and say, don't sell it to third parties, period. Mm -hmm. And if you do it, you're subject to to contract violation. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that piece of it. But uh, there's a lot more to the protection because, of course, private organizations can get hacked. So that too is a concern and that's not something that can be handled within a contract, you know, periodic audits, right? So if you've got a, a, third, uh, a third party handling data is maybe another way is to ensure that there are periodic audits of, of how that data is being handled, you know, things like that. But I'll say right off the top that I'm not, you know, in that realm, that is not my expertise or people who are a lot smarter than I am who know a lot more about that subject. My expertise is bet more on the, the question about how can the legislature make decisions off of data. That is generally across the board, a subject that a lot of progress can and should be made on. Just to give you a little bit of context, several years ago, I worked uh, with uh, Orange County in California. I thought they had a really interesting approach to data. And, and, and it really starts with, it starts with a mindset 
toward data. And I think there's, um, this is just how I feel about it. And Mm -hmm. and I actually kind of wish others in government felt more like this. Some do, some don't. But the way I think about data is it's not the government's data. It's the public's. I mean, unless Mm -hmm. there's data that is truly subject to confidentiality, like uh, social security numbers, birth date, you know, things that are absolutely should not be out there in the public domain because they are privacy issues. Otherwise, data that government has is the public's data. Hmm. And, and it should be as available as possible. And that's a philosophical viewpoint, but that's one that I hold. When I worked with Orange County, they too had that, that viewpoint that the data that they had was largely public and that it was their job to make it available to the public. Hmm. And so rather, rather than producing periodic reports that could be put on a website somewhere and say, here's this report for this period of time and it's static data. What Orange County did was they created basically, uh, an, it's called an API uh, application interface, or it, it basically is a way for the public to go directly to and access data and slice it and dice it any way they want. And Vermont does that in some realms, like mm-hmm. the Agency of Transportation does a lot of that. There's a lot of uh, geographical information system data that is like that. So there are pockets within state government where there's a very open perspective on data. But I don't know that that's, it's not perhaps as broad as it should be, in my opinion. And this is what I would imagine, and I would personally love to see any state accomplish. But imagine a legislator being able to go to, if, if, if the legislator wishes, to go to some website, even if you have to log in to do it, and to be able to run his or her own reports to mm-hmm. dig into the data, to put it into different uh, dimensions and, and query it in different ways. Like really for a legislator to have the ability to dig into the data as much as he or she wants to stimulate questions about how government is being run. So just to use an example to, to hopefully make it concrete for, for listeners, let's say we'll just use Emily as an example. Yeah. And her committee's talking about a child care bill yeah. and financing child care. She would be able to maybe go to this website and find out like how many people in Wyndham County actually have child care and roughly how much like a range of what they're paying for it and then maybe compare it to i don't know franklin county or or orange county or washington county that's right and i I think on the one hand there's always a need for legislators to have quote i'm I'm just going to say official reports right Mm -hmm. official reports that say these certain things occurred in this period and this is what the organization is officially reporting on happened. And that, that requirement's never going to go away. On the other hand, though, there's that part where, again, you know, Emily could, could go and she could do her own analysis. You know, she could dig into the data herself. Mm-hmm. And it's creating systems in a way that rather than an individual legislator or committee saying, making a request of some person who then goes back to their organization who says, 
geez, I need a report on such and such a data because the legislature is asking for it. And, and then two or three weeks go by and then, you know, people are trying to generate that data for, for the request that gets fed back up. Then, then that data is finally presented to the legislator or committee that asked for it. Imagine if none of that had to happen and a legislator could just, yeah, I'm going to go run my own report. I'm going to go run my own data. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just for legislators. A- Emily's question was particularly around how could it help legislators make decisions? Mm-hmm. But it's certainly why, why wouldn't you want the public to be able to do their own digging as well? So going back to the top of our discussion in the previous uh, uh, segment, how can the public know and get confidence that they're getting the outcomes that their taxes are paying for, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just how am I getting the services that I expect as an individual resident of the state, but maybe someone in Vermont might want to say, might want to want to know, hey, I just want to feel confident that my the taxes I'm paying are actually achieving the outcomes. And maybe I want to do my own analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see that as a really good goal. And to do that means being very open with data. Mm -hmm. Uh, As open as possible without, of course, sacrificing uh, privacy. Right, which I think, um, you know, with Vermont's data broker laws and and some of the other things, legislation they've done around data, they have tried to make sure they protect Right. Uh, people's privacy, which I think brings us to maybe the next level of this question, or, or I'll back up here. Is there a best practice? Like, how do we make sure we, we collect the data properly? And, and how do we avoid some of the issues you run into with like algorithms and how they can actually be discri- biased? Yeah. It's a really interesting question, and I have not thought about it. Uh, I I would love to think about it. It's a really interesting, especially this day and age where where I think we're seeing tangible evidence that it actually does happen. It's not hypothetical. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the simple answer is anonymizing data in a way to avoid, you know, it's, it's, there are different ways to do it from a data perspective. One, one is to create a wholly different data set that is completely anonymized. And then algorithms can be run against that, what I would refer to as sort of a sanitized um, data set. Or there are ways to build layers on top of the, the true data set to prevent it from being mined in a way that you're describing. There are ways to do it. And again, it's not something I've thought a lot about, but it, it's a really interesting subject these days when we're just seeing so much more tangible evidence that it does occur. Mm-hmm. It's yet another facet to this whole big data subject that warrants it warrants some really serious thinking. Going forward, what questions around big data do you think the legislature should be asking that maybe they aren't? Yeah, good question. I think 
this may be too in the weeds and, and I may be, I'm probably coming at this with my IT hat on. That's why, uh, that's why you're here. <laughs> but, but, but I, you know, I would, um, to try and strike at the heart of the issue, if I were sitting in a legislator seat, the question I would ask of, of almost any uh, organization is how many, the whole reporting landscape that an organization has, how many of your reports are kind of what I'm going to refer to here as like one-off reports that have just a static set of data? How many are there of your whole reporting world? What's the composition of your reports? How many of them are of the kind where it's just sort of a canned static report that shows a, a certain segment of data? And how much of it is data that can be easily mined? And, and exposed to legislators or the public? And what's the breakdown? Is it 70-20 or 70-30? Is it, you know, 50-50? Because the reason I, I pose that is because that would be a pretty strong indicator how the organization thinks about its data. Hmm. From there, say, for instance, the answer is, it's actually like 80-20. And, and if I heard that response, I would say, well, shouldn't you be doing more to be structuring the data in a way that is more open, but at the same time, just as we're talking about, making sure that you've got the right protections in place, that discrimination, using the data in a way to, to bolster discrimination can't occur either. Mm -hmm. But the, the precursor to all of that is to have that sort of open data layer. Mm -hmm. So legislators really need to get at the heart of how does the organization handle its data in the first place. Okay. We are just about out of time. And I know we have pulled on many, many threads in this conversation. Right. What would you like to leave listeners with? You know, I, I go back to the beginning uh, the point that you made at the intro of, of uh, our discussion. And I, I really think you, you nailed it when um, you, you talked about how, what is the judge of whether a, a system is in control, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you had said whether somebody's getting the outcome, the intended outcome of the system. And I, I think you really hit, hit the nail on the head there. And so what I would leave listeners with is be inquisitive and ask legislators and ask your government whether you are getting the outcomes of those systems and don't be shy, you know, because that's all everybody's, everybody's paying for it and everybody should be getting their money, their money's worth out of it. Thank you very much. Scott Woodward, information consultant. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have a website. If folks want to see some of the, the writing you do or the commentaries you have submitted to VT Digger, where can they find that? Uh, it's on a website called forestandwater.com, one R, but just fair warning to everybody. I write about my dogs a lot. There's a lot, a lot of her. But Every, anybody's welcome to visit that website. <laughs> well, for the sake of our radio listeners, yes, there is a very sweet dog sleeping behind Scott right now, and there's a cat over his other shoulder. So, yes, this is a pet-friendly household here. <laughs> I've got a big posse, yep. <laughs> 
Thank you for joining us, Scott. As always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV and our website, themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. Hey, everybody, have a wonderful day.